What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness. On this episode, we talk to Barbara Sanchez, PhD student from Ohio State who is focusing on all of you women and how your flow can benefit the training you are doing. Barbara, so you know you're our second guest, so we're still relatively new with this. Um, I'm honored. Yeah, we're we're excited. We're going to get this going. So Barbara, why don't you kind of, you know, give everyone an intro, uh, your background and all of our five listeners that I think that are listening a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, my name is Barbara Sanchez. I am a first year PhD student at The Ohio State University. This is my second semester in the PhD program. I was there since August of 2018 to get my master's. And prior to that, I was born and raised in Florida. So before August 2018, I was never living in any other state than Florida. And I moved all the way to Ohio. So that's an interesting um, change there. In my undergrad, I went to the University of South Florida where I met Adam and we did the exercise science program together. Um, We graduated in 2018 in May, it was like so long ago. but more of a background as to like how I got there. So in high school, I was more into the health sciences. I was in this program called HOSA, which is for future healthcare professionals. It's a co-curricular health-derived organization that uh, establishes leadership skills among students, as well as teach them about health, the healthcare system for the aspiring nurse, doctor, PA, individuals like that. Well, part of HOSA was to do competitions and my competition was sports medicine. And so that was more in line with athletic training uh, about taping ankles. I taped so many ankles out of my classmates to practice uh, splints, uh, learning about sports medicine. So that's where my love of mixing sports with healthcare came about. And I got to the point where I was competing at the national level. So it was, uh, I was one of 30 top competitors and we competed at ESPN wide world of sports in Orlando. Oh yeah. Hard flex there. Um, and that was actually my second time there. Uh, my first time at ESPN uh, Wide World of Sports was for soccer. Um, I was in this club travel team and I competed at the, I think it's like U15 or U16 level um, for this tournament and we actually won gold. So bigger flex there. So that background got me into really wanting to do work with athletics, which is a lot of a uh, of hotspot for a lot of students. But Interestingly enough, when I applied to USF, the athletic training program got switched from a bachelor's to a master's that year. I didn't know that. So what USF did was that they automatically changed my major to exercise science. They figured it was the next best thing. Prior to then, never heard of exercise science. Didn't know what it was, didn't know it existed. I was like, well, sure, let's just go about it. And I was just kind of winging it, let's say because you have to do your prereqs and then you get into the major. So once I got into the major, that's where I got involved with Dr. Bill Campbell and his physique and performance enhancement lab. And I always tell the story that that's where I got my love for research because I was yelling at guys to complete their one RM lifts, (laughs) telling them to, you know, stand back up or press that bar or, you know, lock it out, lock it out, just yelling at guys. And I loved it. I was, I'm this tiny little thing, five foot four, barely hitting 130 when I try, um, yelling at guys that are squatting like four or 500 pounds or deadlifting five, 600 pounds. And I'm just like, here's your protein, have fun. (laughs) Um, So that's where I really loved um, exercise science, where I really got into the whole study design, data collection, Um, I was really inquisitive and I bothered Dr. Campbell a lot about, hey, can I get experience um, doing the pre-testing? Can I get experience doing the post-testing? I don't want to be just a lab assistant who, in my words, like babysat the participants. I wanted to be more involved. So as the semesters went on, more projects got involved. I was able to be a part of like body composition data analysis where we learned the ultrasound machine. And through that experience, that's where I decided to use my position in the Honors College to write a thesis. And the thesis was focusing in on uh, female resistance training and the effects of body composition and strength outcomes. 
Why I chose females was because during my time at USF, all the studies were done on men. And I'm just a hater on that. I'm just like, yo, where are the women? Where are the women at? And Dr. Campbell described to me that before I came there, there was a study that had female subjects, but he described some of the complications working with females presented, um, more like the menstrual cycle. Like how can that be a confounding factor, which makes research a bit more difficult because as you know, the more factors that go into the problem, the more complex it is to figure out did A relate to B. So that's like this, the confounding variables. So when I decided to apply to Ohio State, I wanted to really work with females. I wanted to understand female reproductive physiology specifically. I find the menstrual cycle fascinating because for me, I believe that women's physiological environments are constantly changing. And that makes us so unique compared to men where your environment is just constant where it's more external factors influencing it, while for women, it's external and internal factors. So I find that fascinating and that goes into the line of what I want to do with my research and also with training um, on the side. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, yeah, that, you, you, you definitely covered a lot there. Um, I think I remember just sitting in undergrad, um, specifically, I wanna say it was Dr. Ashley's class, um, and I remember had one semester I was being the president of PTO and I had you um, speak to everyone about HOSA. Um, and I remember you even saying that you were going to do physical therapy. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you, you know, elaborating what made you switch. Um, so what, what would you say, again, why PhD? Um, and if obviously why PhD tips to what led you to get into your PhD program and how kind of what, whatever you did to separate yourself to get into your um your program? Yeah, so why PhD? Well, you remember when you're a child and you're playing pretend like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be this, uh, you know, firefighter, doctor. Well, the first thing I ever wanted to be was, was mother. Um, and then I realized, I was like, well, that's not really going to bring me income. Uh, so I probably need to change it up. So then the second thing that I wanted to be was a teacher. And I still remember this to this day that I had like all my dolls lined up in like a classroom setting. And this was probably like kindergarten or before kindergarten. We had these like thick old books that my parents bought us that were like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, that they were like workbooks that had different subjects like reading and science and math for those grade levels. And I taught my dolls from those books. Um, so that's where like my love of teaching and like sharing information comes from. But as I went through high school, I feel like I kind of forgot that. And so I wanted to be in the health profession, mainly because both my parents were in the health profession. My dad was very, very sick growing up and I found myself taking care of him because my mom worked 12 hour shifts, night shift, one week straight, she was off for a week, but she turned into a vampire. So she didn't, she wasn't up during the day, she was up during nighttime. And so I found myself taking care of my dad a lot. Um, he had diabetes and high blood pressure and all those factors. And that's where I was like, yo, you know, health profession, like I can make a difference here. And it came about when I was in HOSA, we did, I was served as a state officer and we did a lot of workshops for students about leadership development workshops. And during my time as a state officer, I served for two years. I did a lot of workshops and I was like, I love this stuff. I love coming up with a lesson plan, implementing it, you know, teaching students about communication strategies, teaching students about personal accountability. This is all high school. This is before I even got to college. And so, and I found myself in college I was not involved with HOSA as much as I was in high school, but I found myself being involved in the Latin dance club. And so I learned salsa, bachata, and all that stuff. And I got to the point where I started teaching salsa and bachata to people who probably had two left feet. And so breaking down the basics of like, all right, left foot, then you do the right foot, then you go back to the left. So down to the basics. And I loved it. I loved the teaching aspect. So when it came time to actually get in, Couple that with the experience in Dr. Campbell's lab and learning about exercise science, I was like, I wanna be a professor. I want to teach. I want to teach about exercise science. 
I want to do research. I don't want my job to be one thing where I do the same thing over and over again. I want my attention here and my attention there where I'm using a plethora of skills. So by the one, I was like, okay, I wanna be a professor. What do I need to be a professor? Well, more often than not, you do need a PhD. To be where I wanna be, I wanted to teach at a university level. I didn't wanna teach high schoolers or anything like that. I wanted to teach adults because I'm pretty strict and pretty self-disciplined and I, that's reflected upon my teaching where I believe students take initiative for their learning. So by wanting to be a professor, I was like, all right, PhD it is. Well, I need to get my master's first before you can get your PhD. That's just how it goes. And so that's, it was just like the most natural step for me. After undergrad, I was like, I'm gonna go to grad school. That's poof, right there. But where? Um, grad school is very, very different from undergrad. And it's not the sense of, you can kind of just go anywhere and get the same thing. When it comes to grad school, it's more specialized. It's more like, hey, this institution is well known for this or this, or this institution is well known for this aspect of exercise physiology. So I did what you are never, ever, ever supposed to do. And I did a cold application to Ohio State. What does that mean? Well, cold application just means you submit the application and that's it. You don't talk to anybody. You don't give calls to anybody. You don't follow up with anybody. You just submit it. Um, and so <laughs> that's basically what you're not supposed to do, but I was very fortunate enough that I guess my work spoke for itself. The personal statement I wrote, my record, um, the rec letters of recommendation, all those things that come into an application to where I got a position here um, at Ohio State. But what brought me to Ohio State was actually the Florida State Clinic for NSCA. Do you remember that, Adam? Like it was... We went with, I think, Brad Simon and... Oh, yes, 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 I do remember this. Back in the day. So NSCA is the National Strength and Conditioning Association, uh, kind of like ACSM, but focused on strength and conditioning. And we got our CSCS, our Certified Strength and Conditioning Certification. Of course, that requires CEUs and continuing education. Well, every state has their own state clinic, which is basically an opportunity for individuals to meet with professionals and learn and collaborate and network and all that fun stuff. Well, there was one in Tampa for Florida and USF is located in Tampa. So we we're just like, yo, why not? And it was like 30 bucks for students to go anyway. $30 a whole day to learn and you get free lunch. Sure, why not? So we went there and like five, like five or six presentations were from Ohio State in Florida. And so that got me thinking, well, if they're flying these people from Ohio to Florida, Ohio State must have a good program, right? That's how naive I was. <laughs> they must be good, right? So after that, and the most amazing thing, and I'm probably jumping all over the place, but the most amazing thing that I remember is that Dr. Kramer was there, Dr. William Kramer. And I was so damn nervous and scared that I just didn't talk to him. Didn't go up to him because I saw there was a whole line of people that wanted to talk to him. He's like the godfather of strength and conditioning. Like he's a pretty cool person. And so I was like, yeah, I, don't, I want to talk to him, but I don't want to. And I was like, oh my gosh. But now things are coming full circle to now where he calls me every week to discuss classes because I help him teach a class. So things come full circle. So now I talk to him on almost a daily, we can say. Um, but I digress. So after that conference, I decided to go home and I was like, let me just apply to Ohio State for grad school. Um, this was the time of year when we were applying. So my own kind of theory on applying to schools is that you always have to apply to one school that you think is out of your reach, but you still apply to it and you still put your effort into the application. Um, for my undergrad, that was Yale University. I only got so far to get an interview. Um, I didn't get accepted, but that was my line of logic. Okay, apply to some local schools that I can have my opportunities here and just shoot one in the dark and see where it lands. Well, that shot in the dark turned out to be the best damn thing I've ever done for myself. And thinking about it, it's like um, the belief in myself that I have the brains, I have the capabilities, I can work towards this gave me the confidence to be like, yeah, let me just apply and see what happens. 
Um, so a couple months later, we were getting acceptances. Um, I got accepted to USF and to UT. However, neither provided me a GA position, which is a graduate associate, which essentially helps pay for the tuition. So I was kind of bummed out. I was like, dang, all right, what am I going to do? I completely forgot I applied to Ohio State, to be honest. Completely forgot, because like I said, it was a cold application. I did no follow-up. So mentally, it was like, all right, send and forget about it. One day, I got this phone call from an unknown number, but the area code was 614. says Columbus, Ohio. I looked at it and remember thinking, who is calling me from Ohio? I don't know anybody. And so I purposely ignored the call. So then I saw, I was like, oh, voicemail. All right, let me just check it out. Lo and behold, it was Dr. Marish, uh, my advisor right now, calling me to say, hey, you know, we accepted you. We want you to come to Ohio State. Um, just let me know what you think. Uh, let's schedule a meeting. Maybe you can come up here for a visit. And as soon as I heard that voicemail, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I just like completely ignored this opportunity. So one thing led to another. I came to visit. Um, at the, it was like the end of March of 2018, and I got the tour, talked to all of the professors in this scary like round table discussion, this fancy conference room, we had Dr. Jeff Folick, Dr. Brian Fote, Dr. Rick Potosa, Dr. William Kramer, and Dr. Carl Marish. They were all sitting in this conference table, and they're like, you take the head of the table and tell us about yourself. And I damn well almost shot my pants. I was like, okay, where do I begin? And I was like, whew. But then the most beautiful thing is that now I'm here talking to you guys about that experience. And I could just sit back and laugh and be like, wow, how much have I learned in the past like two and a half years since that moment, three years almost. And it just blows my mind about the opportunities that grad school can produce for you. You can go in with an objective, but that doesn't mean that objective is gonna stick the whole time. Everything is gonna wax and wane and you're going through a professional and personal evolution at the same time. And so it definitely changed me forever as a person and as a professional. And it's just a blessing and opportunity to be able to share that with everybody. So one of the big things I'm trying to figure out is what suggestion would you make? I mean, a uh, big trend here is probably confidence. You've gained a lot of confidence, I think, over the last few years after you get accepted into OSU. But why not have that as you're applying? Why have a shot in the dark at OSU? Uh, that's a big, uh, I would say... Uh, recommendation for people looking into this, but what other tips would you recommend? So definitely when applying to a grad school or a PhD program or what I call your next steps, you have to do your research. And this is something that I did not do as much as I should have looking back, but don't we all have those thoughts where you're like, man, if I knew then when I knew now, like that application would have been fire. That application would have been like, the best damn thing to hit their desk. But some tips about going out there is knowing what you want. And sometimes that takes research. Like I knew since I was a kid, I wanted to be a teacher, but it took some time to actually realize and recognize that through opportunities and through taking chances. So I took a chance by going into Dr. Campbell's lab and saying, I don't know what the heck is going on here, but I want in. Um, so taking a chance and realizing that no matter what happens, you are always going to suck at something. You're always, something is not going to be your strong suit. You're going to fail at something. But the major thing is, is to keep pushing forward and to keep doing what you want to do out of passion, not out of expectation. So it wasn't expected out of me to apply to Ohio State. It wasn't expected out of me to, you know, go to that clinic. It was something that I chose to do out of my own 
desire to get better and my own desire to pursue my passions. I wanted to learn more about exercise science and about training adaptations and about um, things that will help me be a better strength coach. And that's why I joined that clinic. And through that experience at Open Miles, I was like, wow, these people are knowledgeable and passionate. Let me, I want in on that. I don't know what's going on at OSU right now. I don't know what kind of projects they have. I don't know what space they have for me, but I want in, so let me just take that shot. It was something that my uh, high school guidance counselor, Dr. Snyder, told me. I was really close to her. She said that you, you will never know unless you put your name in the hat, which is kind of another way of saying, um, basically, you're always going to miss the shots that you don't take. Um, the squeaky wheel is always going to get the oil, something along those lines. So taking that personal initiative is definitely paramount into anything that you want to do to be successful. And that's something that I would suggest that you have that personal initiative, that you take that chance, you take that risk. What's the worst thing they can say? No. Okay. And you move on. What's the worst thing you can do? Embarrass yourself? Well, I embarrass myself all the time. Like it's, it's the human factor. We're always going to do something where it's like, oh, I probably should not have said that that way. Whoops. Or you say something, you're like, wow, that came off as like a dirty joke, but uh, my bad, you know, in front of a professional crowd. So it's just understanding that nothing is going to get handed to you. You have to reach out for it. And if it's not there, reach out in a different direction. Um, so that'll be something that I would definitely highlight. I did take notes here, so I'm just trying to remember what I want to share. So basically, like, initiative is a big one. Confidence is a big one, but also engagement. Actually putting your attention and focus to what you are doing. I know in the classroom, it's really hard sometimes. We get distracted. Sometimes a lecture is in talking about something that is of interest of us, but you can always learn from any opportunity, whether it is your, of your interest or not of your interest. So getting engaged with your studies and engaged with your passions, you're going to be successful no matter how much money you make. And it's not about money. It's about being happy. It's about doing what you love and loving what you do. And through that, going from your passion and working towards it by engaging in activities and in taking personal initiatives to lead yourself further into your passions um, is something I would suggest everyone kind of take a deep look at themselves and be like, what do I really want to do? And how do I get there? And take one step forward. The next day, take another step forward. The next day, you can maybe leap. <laughs> Who knows? I would say, man, you, we all know this, this podcast called All the Smoke. Barbara is dropping all the smoke right now. All the smoke. <laughs> Yo, so, all right, Barbara. So I think a lot of people, what they don't know about you is, right, you used to actually be like, you know, a, a group instructor, a personal trainer. Um, tell us, you know, a little bit about that side and how possibly that has transferred over to, you know, your current research at OSU um, and even a, about your thesis um, at USF. How do those, uh, you know, those factors, uh, being a trainer coach, kind of play into your role as a researcher? Oh, for sure. So my first coaching experience when it comes to like fitness coaching. Um, I consider dancing also coaching, but in a different aspect was my experience working at Verizon. Um, so I had the opportunity to work part-time as a uh, like corporate wellness intern at Verizon. I did that for a semester and that's where I got my experience doing group fitness. That's where I got my experience actually learning how to lift properly and going through some injuries and some whoopsies about going too hard too soon. And I remember one of the things that got me terrified was like, hey, you're gonna teach a spin class. Oh, excuse me, <laughs> what? A spin class is like a cycle class with music. And I was like, yo, what do you mean I'm gonna, no, I'm not gonna do this. But they made me do it and I did it. And so I came up with like this Latin thing playlist cause that's all I know. And that experience like showed me the similarities between teaching and training. There's a lot of skills involved with both. There's a lot of transfer skills, I would say. And it kind of takes, takes the teaching to the next level where you're actually implementing actionable changes. 
So that experience got me more confident into displaying what I know about exercise science, about lifting. And then in addition, my other training experience was the FIT program we had at uh, undergrad at USF, which low-key, the best thing for undergrads, to be completely honest. Um, basically, that program was that normally we were supposed to be paired up, and we had a client that was uh, either faculty or staff member at USF, and we were their personal trainers for a semester. Well, I had the opportunity of have, um, not having a partner. I don't know why Dr. Ashley or uh, Dr. Campbell chose that, but instead of being partnered up with my classmate to uh, train this one individual, I was the sole trainer for this individual. So it was really a great opportunity for me to develop my own training philosophy and actually going through the struggles of personal training. Uh, for example, one of the first weeks we had, for some reason, my client's car didn't work. And so they wouldn't allow her to go inside the, uh, I forgot what his name is called, rec center, right? We're gonna go into the, I was gonna say RPAC, but I was like, that's not right. Uh, the rec center to work out. And I was just like, but I need this for a grade. Like she needs to work out. I was like, what the hell do I do? And so I was like, it's Florida. It's warm all the time. Let's go outside and let's do an outdoor workout. And so we found some tires. We found like this random sandbag that the JRTC uses right by the RPAC. And I went and I just came up with a workout on the fly. I was like, all right, we're going to do some jumps. We're going to do some walking lunges. We're going to do some calisthenics outside. And that experience really highlighted to me my ability to think on the fly and to keep in mind the principles of training, which is you know movement mechanics, doing things properly, so on and so forth. And so moving on from that, we had the internship. And I interned at Tampa Sports Academy. Uh, this was probably the most impactful experience I had because I got to work with children as young as six I was coaching. We did group classes for high school athletes. We did um, training for the JV football team nearby. And we worked with tactical professionals. We worked with gen pop. We worked with older adult. It was literally everybody under the sun came to this facility. And so that's where I got really great experience working with agility, working with speed training, and working with more like the baseline strength, understanding the basics. Like, how do you teach a child how to squat? Like, okay, I was like, all right, how am I gonna do, how do you teach a child to run? So basically going back down to the basics and that really formulates my philosophy of keeping it simple and keeping it to the basics. And like I said, that translates over to teaching. For me in my field, like you have to master the basics in order to be able to teach others how to do the basics. You have to really understand the ins and outs of the basic foundational knowledge because from there, that's where everything sprouts is your foundation. If the soil is terrible, your trees are gonna be trash. You gotta get that good soil there. And so using that experience, working with military, working with children, and coupling my interests with working with women, I've decided that I want to focus my research on female reproductive physiology, mainly looking at female reproductive hormones, estrogen, progesterone, mainly, and how those influence different factors of health, fitness, and performance in line with balance, agility, strength, and power measures. So that's where my thesis came from, from those desires to understand those concepts and from the desire to basically demystify working with women uh, because the menstrual cycle is fluctuating changes. Um, I find pregnancy fascinating in the sense of how the physiological changes of the body um, basically go through that nine month period and then postpartum. And it's just a, a lot of taboo subjects. Like I'm the woman in the lab that talks about periods all the time. I'm the one that talks about contraception. Like, Hey, you know, if you're feeling like shit on your period, the best thing to do is go for a walk, get moving, um, get active and sleep and all this stuff. And so Oh my gosh, I'm kind of losing my train of thought because I'm going all over the place, but. <laughs> no, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Keep it going. So that's where I want to do with my work with female reproductive physiology is quite literally understanding how those fluctuations affect 
agility balance mainly because I feel like agility and balance are paramount to activities of daily living. If we're not balanced, you're not going up the stairs right. If we're not balanced, how the hell are you going to carry groceries and being all lopsided? Um, if you're not agile, you can hurt yourself if some, you know, you're running after somebody, your dog in the middle of the road, you know, wandering off or, you know, running on with kids. And the basic facets of strength and power are very underappreciated in gen pop female populations. So the taboo nature and the myths that, oh, if I do resistance training, I'm going to be bulky and look manly or all this other bullshit. It's just bullshit. Um, and the fact that, oh, if you're pregnant, you shouldn't be exercising. That's fucking bullshit. Our ancestors, you know, back in the day, hunter gatherers, those women worked till the day that baby popped out. They were out there doing activities of daily living, lifting, they were picking, bending over, lifting things. And so from understanding our history as humans, I was like, okay, well, exercise during pregnancy needs to be better understood because the, and this is again, like my philosophy on life is that the health of women determines the health of humanity because everybody comes from a womb and everything affects the womb, what you eat, how you sleep, the air you breathe, the stress you enact on yourself, socioeconomic status, uh, how much you move, all those factors influence the baby and that influences every single generation. So by understanding female reproductive physiology, optimizing female health and fitness parameters, understanding how do performance and strength change as a woman goes through her life, as a woman goes through different phases of the menstrual cycle, as women become women during puberty, those I feel will impact the future of humanity. And that's pretty big level thinking, but that's where it comes from for me. It's like women's health is so important that it needs to be up there in terms of climate crisis, in terms of socioeconomic disparities. Women's health needs to be a top priority because that's gonna determine our children's health, their children's health, and thereafter and thereafter. Yes, so, I mean, you can hear just the passion of your voice. And Chris, you can go ahead and ask, but there's one question I would like to specifically ask to you, Barbara, because, you know, someone that works with some female powerlifting clients, female gen pop clients, things of that nature. I've heard it from both ways. And I've even talked to other individuals. <clears throat> and I think you, if I, I remember, I put you in touch with Taylor. Mm -hmm. um, and she found, I want to say no difference with her strength measurements, um, comparing males and females and things of that nature. Um, and just even always having that conversation with clients say, Hey, how does that time, you know, affect you strength mm -hmm. emotionally? And it's, it's obviously every program is individualized, but it's insane how different people respond to that. I've had individuals as like, I don't care. I can just continuously go. It doesn't affect me. And you have the opposite end of the spectrum is like, yo, strength is the shit. I'm hungry. I'm angry. What is your approach or suggestions for either one of those um, individuals? So that comes from my mind. You need to track your cycles um, because women are in a very unique position to where week by week, our physiology changes um, that in order to understand your body, you need to track these variables, understand, well, if I'm feeling this way in this, I'm feeling shitty on my first two days of my period, but days three, four, five, six, I'm fine. Leading up to my period, oh, there's no symptoms. I feel fine. I can work out. Other women are just like, yo, like that three days before my cramps, I am moody. I am hungry. You have to understand yourself. And that is something that I want to implement into my methodological practices is that, and it goes back to the research a lot of the issues with research in terms of female fitness, female performance, comes from not understanding that there are certain thresholds in terms of hormonal responses that are normal, and there are certain ones that are not normal, but you will not know that unless you do the testing. And so what does that mean? Well, part of my thesis had a big chunk about tracking menstrual cycles, tracking those variables, how important that is in terms of research to help us understand those non-significant findings. Is it non-significant because those women were having a luteal phase deficient cycle in which they did ovulate, but for some reason, the corpus luteum wasn't fully developed, so it wasn't able to produce 
the progesterone and the estrogen needed that is characteristic of the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle? Or did those women not ovulate at all, but they still have a normal period to where the corpus luteum is not formed at all? So where they don't have those hormones. What about their energy intake? What about their sleep patterns? Working with females, it is complex. I'm not gonna lie. It's way more complex than working with men. But in order to answer those questions that you present, Adam, in order for you to help those clients, we need to have scientists who are brave enough to go after the complex and be like, listen, this is a complex, but here it is. We're lining it up. And that is a lot of issues with current research in females is that the methodologies implemented are not sound enough. They are not good enough. And there are suggestions out there. There's plenty of articles out there that say, hey, in order to do menstrual cycle research, you cannot just ask them when is their last day of the menstrual period. That's not enough. You have to look at menstrual cycle length characteristics. Do they have a longer cycle than normal, a shorter cycle than normal? Are there hormone levels at the appropriate level, at the appropriate instances to trigger these events? Because estrogen is the main female sex hormone, and it works a little similarly to testosterone in terms of um, muscle, oh my goodness, like muscle uh, functioning and protein functioning, stuff like that. And it comes to the point of, I'm trying to remember your questions, comes to the point of tracking. Each woman is different. So if you have the client that's like, hey, I feel freaking phenomenal any time of the day, okay, well, let's make sure that we track your menstrual cycle as we're tracking your training history, making sure you have those things in line. Men don't really have that issue, but if you track your menstrual cycle along with your training cycles, your resistance training or aerobic training cycles, that'll give you a better understanding about those individual variations. And there's plenty of apps out there for women to track their menstrual cycle. The key is to be consistent. Consistently track your cycles, consistently understanding what happens with your own body, because at the end of the day, that's what's going to fuel your motivation is how you're feeling or how your body's reacting to these different situations. And so as a coach, I would say just being aware of, you know, certain times of the month are just going to suck and we have to go about it, but this is how we can modify our plans. This is how we can make sure that those cramps are not you know, too horrible. Let's take these preventative measures. Let's make sure that you're understanding that before the time of the month, you may need to eat an extra 100 or 200 calories. So you need to program that into their understanding. Okay, well, you might become bloated so your clothing may not fit properly or you may feel uncomfortable doing certain motions because of the bloating, mm -hmm. such as, you know, deadlifting or leg press where everything kind of compresses in. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, so I would say, like, right, a lot of it is just the, that coach-client relationship and asking those, I don't want to say awkward questions, but much-needed asking questions. And, like, some individuals that it doesn't affect them, you kind of just, all right, well, we're going to just keep rolling with it. The other individuals that, you know, it, it's extremely effective. I've taken this um, idea from a, lot, a, a podcast for 3DMJ is, like, let's just structure refeeds, give you more foods if you're hangrier and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um but however, right, what would you um, do for those individuals that it, it's so all over the place as well? Because I have a, another client that one week it's, it is what it is, or one month it is what it is, another week mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's terrible. But would you still stand by, hey, you just have to kind of be aware of wh whatever happens, this is the approach you're going to take? I would say at that point, if it becomes... Uh, very fluctuating to where if one month is good, the next month is kind of funky, the other month to where there's not a pattern, I would refer out to possibly their physician, possibly to an endocrinologist, um, possibly to just looking further into it because abnormal fluctuations are a sign that something isn't right. Something is out of balance because the menstrual cycle is the fifth vital sign for women. It's just as important as blood pressure, heart rate, respiration rate, temperature. It gives you so much information about what's going on to where a couple months you're like, oh yeah, you know, this is how it is. But now for the last three months, these things have changed. My periods are longer. I feel more shitty. 
I feel more just hangry and bloated, but you're not seeing any significant reason in terms of the training stimulus you're providing or the nutritional advice you're giving. That's where I would refer out and have that network of referrals of other professionals to help because not every coach can be a women's health specialist. That's definitely not what I'm trying to say here. Um, I would say just know where your strengths and limitations are. And if you have a client that's really struggling with something like that, I would definitely refer out to either a specialist or something like that and get them involved with the conversation. Get them involved with, hey, this is the training that I'm doing with the client. And these are what she's, she's been reporting the past three months. Provide that data, provide that information, because whenever there, there's a normal amount of discomfort, but just because it's an abnormal discomfort doesn't mean it's normal. So for example, by having, let's say one month, she's like, oh, I'm kind of crampy, but I can, I can work with it. Let's just ramp the intensity down a little bit. Cool. The next month, let's say uh, I cannot get out of bed. These cramps, I have a heating pad. I can't really move from the chair. That's a sign that that's a problem. That shouldn't be considered normal. Um, and so it comes about with taboos and talking about menstruation. And you said like that awkward conversations. And I want to say it's only awkward if you make it awkward. Um, and I do understand the struggle between the male and female client trainer relationship to where those aspects may be not the most comfortable thing to talk about. But if you lay it out as this is just a part of you and your body, and I'm going to treat it just as normal as you know, you sweating all over the place whenever you're working out or someone's breathing heavy, like I'm treating your period just like that. It's just what happens. It's normal. That's how we start opening up those conversations to where you can get better insight into what's going on with your client. And then as a trainer, you work with it. You work with those fluctuations. You work with those nuances. And if you don't know the answer, then I would refer to somebody, refer to their physicians are like, hey, I noticed that the past two months you have been skipping during the time of your month, our sessions. What's going on? Are you okay? Oh, you know, I'm having, you know, just debilitating symptoms. I feel so fatigued and sluggish. This doesn't used to happen to me before. That's a signal. Those are signs and symptoms of something that's not right. Maybe, you know, stress at work is influencing the HPA axis. And cortisol levels are higher than they should be. That could influence some kind of menstrual symptoms. Or maybe it's just, you know, not eating enough of the proper nutrients, maybe being nutrient deficient in some things. There's a whole plethora of issues going on. So my bottom line would be, if you don't know, refer out, but also keep track and tell your clients to track your cycles, track what's going on with your body so that we can identify those instances where things are not proper and we can look for reasons as to why. This is great information for not only coaches, but for individuals that train either alone or with a coach that may not ask these questions because the coach might feel as if it's awkward or they just might not be realizing these signs. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman that is having these unregular, irregular symptoms, look further into it. Don't think it's just, oh, it's normal for your period because there could be so many other things um, that could be going on basically. But the big thing I'm curious on is what are you currently researching on within women's health right now? I mean, are I guess within COVID right now, are you guys doing research first question, but what are you looking at right now? So overall, COVID threw just a huge ass wrench into my whole machinery here. So what I described earlier as my study for my thesis, um, breaking it down a little bit further, the main part was looking at during the late follicular and the mid-luteal phases of the menstrual cycle, how does balance, dynamic and static balance, agility, strength, and power measures differ if they differ between these two phases what categorizes these Barbara, two phases? can i cut you off right there can you explain yeah. those phases because i'm not very smart yeah. and i have no that's idea that's what i'm gonna is. do man i was just about to get there <laughs> all right my bad my bad I have, I have, <laughs> for those who can't see i had one hand up and the other hand up boom boom 
So the late follicular phase is characterized by the highest level of estrogen within the menstrual cycle. It is right before ovulation. So high estrogen peaks ovulation. And then the mid-luteal phase is when you have the highest level of progesterone and the secondary peak of estrogen. So during the follicular phase, estrogen is dominant. There's very little progesterone. Progesterone is produced after ovulation. And after ovulation, estrogen is also produced, but to not as high an extent as the follicular phase. And I can get really into the physiology if you really want me to. But so the point of that, these are two time points in which we have the nadirs of those hormonal levels. So in my mind, if we see performance differences between these two phases, that could lead us into developing menstrual cycle specific training programs that uses these differences, possible differences in performance outcomes to modulate your training approach. So for example, you know, if your strength is not as high during the mid-luteal phase compared to your late follicular phase, maybe during the follicular phase, you train more those strength parameters, while the luteal phase, you'll train more muscular endurance parameters. In terms of balance and agility as well, if we see those differences, then we can look into, that's kind of how I want to translate that knowledge. And in line, I was using a menstrual cycle tracking app for every subject to individually track their menstrual cycles. And this specific app allows each, client, uh, each research participant to PDF export their data to us, which is dope. They're not only tracking when their menstrual cycle is happening, they're tracking how much is the blood flow, how long are they bleeding, what other symptoms do they have? Nausea, backache, headache, um, what was another one, like bloating, cramps, acne, all those factors. They could also track their mood, if they're feeling happy, sad, pissed, angry, all those factors. And they provide information on their sleep. How many hours are they sleeping every night? So I asked them to track each of those variables every day and export them each week so that our training team can look at those individualized differences. Because if we see a group, let's say there was 10 women, five of them showed differences, but five of them didn't within their performance between those phases of the menstrual cycle, we can use that tracking log for further analysis. What about these five women who had responses? Are there similarities between them? Are there differences? How did they compare to this group who showed no difference? So that was kind of where I was coming from. Unfortunately, the week that I had my very first subject scheduled for her very first familiarization visit was when COVID shut down everything at Ohio State. Yeah, it was, I was just, oh, so pissed. Um, because I worked so hard on developing this project. Um, I created this project from the ground up. This wasn't a project that my mentor had in the books. It was something that was my idea. I formulated it, written the research proposal, uh, presented the proposal to my committee. I did the IRB process by myself, which is a nightmare figuring that out, and then did all the recruitment. I trained my undergrads myself. I was learning how to take blood. Um, we have the ability to kind of be semi-phlebotomist here. So I learned how to draw blood so I can do the serum hormone analysis because I was taking blood samples and actually quantifying the hormonal levels of estradiol and progesterone. And so where am I going with that is that right now that project is in a halt. I'm at the position now where we're figuring out what to do with it um, because so much time has passed because of COVID regulations and we had a phased approach as to resuming research on top of me, you know, figuring out how to graduate. I graduated on time, so yay. And going through the PhD process where we have to shift all of our courses to online. So right now, my main focus is on teaching is supporting my faculty by being the technological guru behind Carmen. Um, I was able to work and transfer our basically exercise physiology lab from an in-person course to an online course. 
that was what I was working on. And so when it comes to research right now, we're working on figuring out, should I take this project, that was my thesis, and turn it into my dissertation? Or should we kind of scale it down to do a small scale study so that it could build into a dissertation? That's what we're trying to figure out right now. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that expired because of the hiatus of COVID, all the ovulation tests. Um, some of my blood collection tubes have expired. Um, we're looking at personnel and manpower. Um, I'm the only grad student that my professor has, so I don't have a team really to fall back on. It's kind of like, what am I capable of doing? So right now, my current research focus is on writing, which is not really what people may not think of as research, but in my eyes, research that isn't published is research that isn't done. So right now during COVID, while we're still understanding the research hurdles that we have to go through, and by me being an asthmatic, I'm pretty apprehensive about working with clients at the moment um, because I have to teach already and that makes me kind of uncomfortable at the moment. Um, so right now that's where I'm at, just working on writing, which is actually head, smacking my head on the table. Find out writing is one of the hardest things about research. It's like, how do you just put it all on paper? Um, but we have some things up in the pipeline coming about. Other labs in my program have been doing amazing projects in terms of the ketogenic diet and its influence on uh, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes. Uh, we have a community project in which they're doing a comprehensive lifestyle intervention with group therapy on top of resistance training on top of um, survivorship in terms of cancer. We have other things in the pipeline concerning um, our data analysis concerning like a float study that we did on uh, using a float as a recovery modality for exercise. Um, so we have a lot of great things going on in the lab, but it's more for me in terms of getting that research out there, which is kind of the half of research that you kind of do at the later end of your PhD. I'm doing it now, kind of that writing manuscripts, writing review articles. I just submitted my first article a couple of days ago. So I'm just like, let's go. Um, so we, those are the kind of things that I'm working on, but hopefully with my dissertation, I would love, 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 love to work with um, female military personnel. So either JROTC cadets or women in the military and looking at these aspects of performance um, as a factor of menstrual cycle variation, but also as a factor of um, pre and postnatal care, which I find fascinating. Like if you have a service woman in the, in the military, she gets pregnant, has babies, comes back into service, her physiology is different, man. It's not the same, but you can't treat it the same way. Like how is it different? How does those, and especially with um, women becoming more a part of active combat situations, their roles in like military police or even on combat units are increasing. So looking into those kind of uh, health and fitness parameters is something that I hope to do in the future. This is extremely awesome because a lot of people don't realize how much time and effort goes into the process of filling out those IRB forms, all these other things. So to like, have that just ripped away from you because of a pandemic and you still continue forward, still figuring out how to make it through your PhD, taking the writing stage that's at the end. This is just incredible. And this, I am excited to see what you're going to discover with this women's research focus that you plan to do, because it is an under researched area and you seem like the perfect person for it. Thank you so much, Chris. I, it was definitely one of those. Well, let me tell you the story, though, because there's, there's always a story with me, with everything. So the week I found out that COVID kind of swept that under the rug, I was not in Ohio. I was in Florida. My brother was getting married. So the week that I was in Florida for two weeks because of the bachelorette and then the actual wedding. The week I was there, that's when Ohio State cut off all the research. So I was like, yo, I'm not even there to pick up this mess. I was like, am I even going to be able to go back to Ohio? That was my concern. That was how much we didn't know. And so I was like freaking out. I was like, yo, am I even going to get my master's? Because 
for our field, you do a thesis. That's what you do. <laughs> There's, uh, but we had to switch to a plan B. And a plan B was for me writing a very extensive literature review um, where I took these concepts of my um, thesis project and I just dived into the literature. I had about six weeks uh, to do this because this was in March when everything happened and I had to graduate by summer or else my funding for the next year would have been messed up because of the whole like policy of you could only be funded as a master's student for two years, you could be funded as a PhD student for four years, those kind of things. So I had about six or eight weeks to switch everything around and write this literature review. And so that taught me this really valuable lesson that things are never gonna go the way you want them to go, <laughs> ever. But the cool thing is, is that there's always a way forward. There's always something to do with those pieces that you think are shattered, that you think, I thought, did I just spend these seven months planning this project? Did it go to waste? All those times bugging Dr. Marish about this IRB thing I needed him to submit for me. All the things about, hey, I need to buy this. How do I buy a balance pad? How do I buy ovulation tests? All right, learning about phlebotomy. Okay, I had to draw blood from Dr. Marish as part of my phlebotomy training. Do you know how nerve wracking that is? Drawing blood from your advisor and it being like your final test to make sure you can do this. It was all those things where I thought was just out the window, but it took some time for me to actually think and appreciate that no matter what happens, you always have to go forward. You don't fall back on something, you fall forward because you can see where you're going. And I can see where I'm going now. I'm going to be a researcher in female reproductive physiology. That's gonna happen. How is that gonna happen? I'm gonna figure it out. I'm going to figure it out as I get there, but it's going to happen. So that kind of determination and just, again, going back to knowing what I want to do with my life. I want to be a professor. I want to study women. I want to help women optimize their health and fitness and combat all these bullshit taboos that come about with working with women and understanding the reproduction. And so it's just, uh, a marvelous journey to realize that no matter what happens, there's always a silver lining to everything and you just got to find it and work with it. Yeah. I'm, I, it's exciting to see, I mean, still be close to you and see where you were in undergrad and where you are now. Um, it's definitely a blessing to call you a really close friend. Um, and I can only, I can only wait to hear what's happening uh, with your lab and your research. We'll definitely have to have a part two where we literally go over just the menstrual cycle and the, the reproductive system. And there's either some topics that I would like, yeah, there's even some topics I'd like to get into like with the female triad and, you know, bodybuilding and things of that nature. So, um, but you covered a lot. And I think if anything, the one overlying thing is, man, just keep pushing forward. Don't matter what happens. It's all about the mindset and you got to kill a mindset. So we appreciate you, Barbara, uh, to wrap things up. I always like to do some random ass questions and I know you're a Ooh, Pokemon fun. fanatic. What is your favorite gen, favorite gen Pokemon? Oh, favorite gen. Oh, gosh. I, I'm a classic Pikachu girl. All right. Okay. So classic gen Pikachu. One. Gen, um, one. gen one, I had a Game Boy Color. It was purple. And I had the uh, Pokemon Pikachu edition. Okay. That okay. was my first Pokemon game. Um, okay. My brother had the blue one, the Squirtle one, but... I was like, I actually, hey, I'm going to go Pikachu all the way, bro. I actually had a purple Game Boy, too. That was, that's dope. Yo. I, had, yeah. I had the yellow. I had the yellow with Pikachu on it, but I had oh. all the games, and I still have all we the games. All so the I'm ones. a Pokemon master still, still yo, to this day. Pokemon is dope, but, like, my bread and butter is Star Wars. Like, okay, okay. I know way too much about Star Wars for my Ain't own no good. <laughs> I know too much about Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. It's all good. Um, so where can everyone find you? Where can anyone find, you know, some information about your work or anything? If people have questions for you, can they reach out? If they can just shoot us all your information right here. Or yeah. also your thesis, where, where can I find this? Is it published online where I can go read it? So I have no idea about the publishing of thesis on Ohio state. I probably have to go into research to find it. I do have a PDF, so I could just email it to you. I don't care about 
any of that. The more knowledge that's disseminated, the better. Um, I am horrible at social media, so I probably need to get my game up on that, but anyone can always email me, uh, sanchez at osu.edu, S-A-N-C-H-E-Z dot 1094 at osu.edu. I'm more than welcome to answer any questions. I do not mind just shooting an email saying, hey, can we just do a quick Zoom? I'm definitely more of a, you know, face-ish to face-ish communicator. <laughs> Is that what you want to call this? But uh, that's where they can find me. Um, I don't really post much about my work on my social media. I feel like that will be coming out in the next couple of years. I want, I have ideas. I want to keep it a bit separated between my personal and professional um, lives, but you can always email me um, at any time. I will respond and we'll share with you what I know. Gotcha. Yeah, we'll definitely put your IG and email in the show notes. But until then, to our next episode, and for our five listeners out there, hope you learned some. This was great, Barbara. I appreciate your time and efforts. Well, See you thank later, you so everybody. much, guys. See you later. Thank you. All right, you can just pause.